and um, it's just really, really amazing. I, I'm glad that we all starting together with the books because it'll give us a more broader understanding of the importance of God's Torah. We often see God's Torah as a legal book, but I will submit to you that it's beyond a legal book. Without understanding the beginning, folks, we will fail to fulfill our jobs at the end. True? If you cannot understand the beginning, how are you going to fulfill the job at the end? So look, folks, a quick look back. I want to just kind of set the stage so we can understand what is it that we're walking into in here. Because I believe that it's important, especially for those of us who have a passion to spread the gospel. How many of us are zealous for spreading the gospel? Oh, yeah. Okay, this is great. It's a good thing to have that zealousness for the gospel. But I will submit to you, if you don't understand the beginning, how can you literally proclaim the gospel at the end? We have to understand this. Why am I saying this, folks? Because there is a major spirit out there today that is leading people to believe that the Torah is just an option in this faith. In other words, we can still praise the Messiah, Jesus, but the Torah is just another doctrine that we can add to it. I will submit to you that's an error, folks. If you are proclaiming Jesus out there, you best to be proclaiming the Torah. Because if you're not proclaiming Jesus, if you're proclaiming Jesus without the Torah, folks, I'm afraid to say you are watering down the truth. And you will be held accountable for that. You see, the spreading of the gospel is not as easy as we think. Because today we've been conceived to believe for the last 1,800 years that you just go out there with a pamphlet, say Jesus loves you, and accept it and say yes, and out you go. Please. This is the reason why we are where we are today, folks. It wasn't as simple as it was in the first century. And I will submit to you today, it's not any easier today either. Why do I say this? Let's look at this, folks. A quick look back. Remember Genesis 6, 5? What did it say? Adonai saw that the people on the earth were very wicked, right? That all the imaginings of their hearts were always of evil only. You guys remember that? We covered that last week. And what was the word there for imagining? Yet said. And in Judaism, it's known as the what? The Yeset Hara, which is the evil inclination. This is huge, so we can understand. Look, it means a form, a conception, or a purpose. Things that are framed. That can even mean your mind, folks. The things that you frame in your mind and the things that you frame in your heart that are not necessarily for God. Or even the works, you can say. That's why in Judaism it's called Yetzel Hara. We pray every day against the Yetzel Hara. That's the evil inclination. So it says in here that God saw that the people were wicked. Now, let's bring this for today, folks. Do you think that we are in a generation today that can literally be compared to that of Noah? I think so, too. I think we live in a generation today that can definitely be compared to that of Noah, which is why the story of Noah 
should have a special interest in each and one of you. Because Noah lived in a generation where the people were wicked and the imagining of the people were wicked. <coughs> but I'm going to define that a little bit deeper so we can understand. Because when we often think about wicked, we think murder, heinous crimes, all these different things. And by the way, that is true. These things are wrong. And that is part of wickedness, by the way. Because the Torah defines it as wickedness. But it goes beyond just murder. It goes beyond just heinous crimes. So in here we see now that this is the stage that's setting up now for the parasha of Noah. One man was found righteous in the eyes of the Lord in a generation, folks. I want you to really think about this. I really want you to think about this. Because the problem today that we have is if it seems like most people are wrong, then we start questioning ourselves. In other words, we tend to kind of go with the majority. Richard, it cannot be possible that all these people got it wrong. Well, what about Noah? You mean to tell me that Noah really could have been bold enough to say that he had it right? And an entire world had it wrong? How many of them were saved? Eight souls. How many people in the world, folks? Millions at that time. I really want you to think about that. Millions of people in an entire world, eight, get saved. There goes your numbers, by the way. In the event that you are moved by numbers, how's that for your stats? <laughs> Think about it. I mean, I'm not making it up. It's there. It's, it's in the books. What do we do with that, folks? The question is, what do we do with that? Do we try to reason out of that? Or do we take that for the way it is? Don't be moved because the majority is stirring one way, folks. Be moved by the Word of God, by the entirety. When I mean the Word of God, folks, understand my idiom. I mean the entirety, not just the Gospels. Be moved by the entirety of His Word. It doesn't matter what man says. It matters what His Word declares. So it says in here that the imagining of people who were wicked, and there was one man that stood for righteousness in that generation. I want you to ask yourself this question as we go through this parasha today. Are you willing to be a Noah in this generation? So don't be quick to answer because it is a question, believe it or not, that Yeshua himself presented to the disciples. Because essentially what Noah did was raise Tamidims. So that they can proclaim disciples, so they can proclaim the goodness. What was Noah's message? Anybody know? Repent. What was Elijah's message? Repent. What was Zechariah's message? Repent. What was Yeshua's message? Repent. What was Paul's message? Repent. What is your message? Repent. Is your message a make me feel good message? Or is your message repent? 
Because you see, they didn't go around with pamphlets saying here, feel good today. I see that there's an emptiness and a void in you. You need Jesus. <laughs> they went with the truth. Repent. You want answers to your problems? Repent. Simply put. There's no sugarcoating. Oh, I'm going through so much in my life. Okay, here, yeah, I got a medicine for you. Repent. <laughs> Sounds good, doesn't it? The question is, what are we repenting from? How can you say to somebody, repent, when you yourself don't walk accordingly? Look, we got to see something amazing, folks. The revelation of the Messiah, Yeshua. Because remember, up to this point, there's nothing but evil, right? What do we do with evil? By the way, by the way, I think this is really, really an amazing story. Because it really answers the question to mankind's ideas. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, man is coming about all kinds of ideas. Maybe we can send a group to Mars. Maybe we can send a group to the moon. Maybe we can start our own utopia. Ah, we know what the problem with the world is. We got certain genetics of the world that are polluting the world. That's what it is. So let's go ahead and get rid of those genes completely and keep the good genes. Maybe that'll fix the problem with the world, right? In the story of Noah, folks, we find something very interesting. The whole world was wiped out. The whole entire world, with the exception of Noah and his family. That means that there was a what? A clean slate at the beginning. You can literally say that this was another bed of sheep in the beginning now again. Because all mankind has been wiped out completely. So, does that take care of the problem? What are we going to find out today that it doesn't? Look, let's see this. From Genesis 6-5, from studying, or rather from Genesis 1, or rather 3, we're going to start seeing something very prophetic. The lineage of each and one of these people actually reveals something, or rather, it reveals the answer to mankind's problem. See, many of you might ask, why do we have to come in here, or any other synagogue for that matter, and study? Well, we can do this at home. But the problem is that in your translation, you will never see what I'm about to share with you today. It's the reason why you're here. This is the reason why the Torah is going forward. This is the reason why teachers, pastors are being raised up to equip so that you can see the things that unfortunately through your translation you just don't see. No, nothing wrong with the translation. It's just a translation. Let's look at this, folks. We started with Adam, the first mankind to ever be created. Right? Adam, it literally means man. From Adam, we have Set. Set literally means to be appointed. Okay? Then from Set, who, got, who was the next one in line? Enosh. Enosh means mortal. From Enosh, where did we go? We went to Canaan, not Canaan, but Canaan, which means sorrow. Then from Canaan came Mahalalel. Mahalalel literally means blessed Elohim. 
Then from Mahalalel, we went to Yeret. The next one in line was Yeret. What is Yeret? It means to literally descend, to come down. Then from Yeret, it came Enoch. What is Enoch? It means teaching. Then from Enoch came Methuselah, or Methuselah, yes. Which means his death shall bring, literally. And then from Methuselah came Lamech. What is Lamech? Despairing, hopelessness. And then from Lamech came what? Noah, which we're going to pick up today. Which means comfort, rest, right? So how many generations, well, how many we, we got in here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. From Adam to Noah, ten. And in those ten, it reveals something really, really beautiful. Because you see, man has been trying to plan this from the beginning of time, folks. Look at the revelation when we put all these names together in Hebrew and their meanings. What it tells us. It says in here, man is appointed, more sorrow, but a blessed Elohim shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the hopeless comfort. It's amazing. Could it be true? Absolutely. Because as we're going to find out, this problem with sin, it's not that easy to get rid of. It's not easy. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to take it back and it's all fixed. <laughs> the curse is already in the earth, folks. The curse is already in the lineage of Adam. And unfortunately, you're born with it, whether you like it or not. So that's why it says that man is appointed moral sorrow. Is that true? Absolutely. Although we have joy in Messiah Yeshua, we cannot neglect the fact that there is sorrow in the world, folks. There is death. There are things that really weigh us down. There's fear. There are loved ones that die, don't they? And we mourn for that. There are loved ones that get sick, and we mourn for that. We have to toil for bread every day, not knowing how we're going to make it, do we? So look, what is the answer? According to the revelation from Adam all the way to Noah, is the blessed Elohim shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the hopeless comfort. A comfort that seems hopeless, doesn't it? So let's look at this, folks. Romans 5.17 says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned, through that one man, right? Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Yeshua the Messiah. The author of Romans, Rav Shaul, is basically saying that the realities of Adam's fall are real, right? Because we don't have to read it in a book, right? We don't have to read it in a book to see how ugly it's out there. The realities is that through one man's trespass, we are feeling it today. For those who don't believe the Bible, just look at your life. Literally, look at the world. Look at the toil. Look at the pain. Look at the grieving. 
All this came through one man's sin. So there are things in the Bible that you don't have to just take its word. You can experience that every day. Like, for instance, the sting of sin. What is the sting of sin? Death. Is there death? Yeah. We see it. We experience it. Even for some of us that are getting older, we feel it, don't we? It's weighing down on us. It's calling us. And loved ones that we, unfortunately, we miss because they have died. So that's very real. Romans 5, 17, it's very real. But it's saying that if that's real, how much more real is it going to be through the one who actually overcame death? The second Adam. If the first Adam is true, that means that the second Adam has to be true. In other words. Which means that there's a great comfort awaiting the people of God. So look. The parasha is Noah, which means literally to rest, comfort, quiet, resting place. When you reverse that, literally means grace. Now, they believe it or not, there is a connection between Noah and grace. And this is what the Father is trying to reveal to us from the very beginning. What is the connection between grace and the law of God? That's a major connection. See, we tend to separate grace from the law. But we're going to learn through this parasha that that is a major error. We cannot separate grace and the law, folks. Because why and how is it that Noah found grace in the eyes of Hashem? By the way, that word grace is used here in the Torah for the first time. It didn't start in the gospel. It started here all the way in Genesis, the word grace. So that we can properly understand what is God's grace? My wife has been doing a great teaching for the ladies on understanding chesed. And I'm glad she's doing that. Because there is chesed that is ra'ah. That is bad. There's bad grace. And there's good grace. In Judaism, this is understood. What do we start every week, folks, when we do the blessing? We said that we have been grafting into Romans chapter 11. We've been grafting into this faith, right? We have to understand these concepts. Not because we're trying to be Jewish, but because we've been grafted into an existing faith. So we need to understand about the faith, right? And how they saw things. If you're going to get grafted into the family or any family, if you get adopted, you need to learn about your family, don't you? If you're going to become a smith, then you need to know about the smith. Amen. Right? That's the whole idea. We need to understand what family we're a part of and learn about them. There is a such thing as bad grace, folks. There's a such thing as good grace. So chesed right here, we need to understand how do we apply good grace in accordance to Israel? And how does the law and grace tie in together? Look. Noah, first of all, before we get into that, Noah was a picture in Judaism of the Messiah himself. Look, the name Noah shares the same root from Menachem. Menachem is actually used in other parts of scripture that the rabbis have saw that ties in to the Messiah himself. And let me share some of it in here. Look, Genesis 5, 29, it starts in there, says, And call his name Noah. We read this again last week, saying out of the ground that the Lord has what? Cursed, right? 
This one shall bring us Menachem. Comfort. He didn't say Noah, he said Menachem. So the rabbis tie in the comforter with Noah because they share the same root word. Noah was supposed to bring comfort from what? From our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Why would they say that? Because they were already prophetically speaking. You see, there's a such thing called the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. They had it, guys. It didn't start in Acts chapter 2. They had it already. The Holy Spirit moved through people. They prophesied. So they were prophesying that Noah would bring comfort from their toils. Look, we read in Sahedra 98b in the Talmud, it says this. And some say that Menachem ben Chizkiyah is the name, is his name, essentially. They're talking about the Mashiach. As it is stated, because the comforter, Menachem, that should relieve my soul is far from me. What they do in here in the Talmud in Sahedra 98b, they're really, really requoting lamentations, which I'm going to share with you. And they tie in the scripture of lamentations with Genesis chapter 5 in the parashah, Noah. They're making the connection with the comfort of Menachem and Noah himself. Look, Lamentations 1.16 says, For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a what? Comforter, Menachem again, is far from me. Want to revive my spirit. So the Menachem, the comforter, supposed to revive your spirit. Isn't that true from Yeshua? That he is to revive our spirits in the same way. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. So we got to see something here more prophetic about the word Noah also. Because why is it that Noah received grace? One must ask. Now we're going to see the connection of grace and the law. Why did he receive grace, folks? Did Noah deserve grace? Technically, not really. Because it says in scripture, they all have fallen short of the glory of God. So Noah was no different. Did Noah sin? Yeah. But yet he found grace in the eyes of Hashem. Let's see this. Let's look at the word Noah. Look, you got the noon and the chet. The noon is often represented as a fish, which represents action, life. Okay? And generally speaking, life. Then you got the head, which represents a fence. And what does a fence serve for? To separate and to protect at the same time. You put a fence because you want your cows to keep out, right? But at the same time, you want your enemies out. So it serves for both separation, to mark the boundaries of your property, and also to separate what you don't want in there, essentially. So look, when you put them together, noha put together means the actions of life that separates us and protects us. Think about it. So there is a connection with the actions, in Hebrew ma'aseh, the deeds and the actions that actually serve for a protection which gives birth to what? Grace. Because what is grace? Look, the Father in His mercy has given us the avenue and how to achieve grace. That's what's so wonderful about Him. He has revealed that. 
By the way, again, not all grace is good grace. You can have bad grace. He has shown us how to obtain good grace. Look, the Torah and grace work together, folks, in harmony. Grace without Torah is incomplete. If I spank a child because she's unruly, right? What good does it do if I don't correct them and show them the right path? Think about it. I'm spanking you, but I'm not telling you why. I'm just going to wait for you to do it again so I can spank you again. And I'm just going to spend my whole life spanking you. That's it. And you're never going to know why. Does that sound appealing? By the way, that's bad grace. That's bad grace right there. You have to share with the people what you're doing wrong. You have to share with that child what he or she is doing wrong. True? So that they don't do it again. That's good, Chesed. That's good grace. In both instances, the child is still getting spanked. He's getting corrected. But one of them is actually bringing correction with the spanking. While the other one doesn't. Look. Yeshua came to reveal the Torah to all who will receive it. It is in here where we find rest for our souls. See, we got to understand that the Tanakh, the Bible in general, teaches us that in order for us to receive rest for our souls, we have to, have to, I'm going to say, walk in obedience. If you truly want rest for your souls. Let me share so that you don't think I'm coming up with it. Shahidra 98b, for instance, in the Talmud, it reveals this. And don't worry, I'm going to share Bible scriptures as well. Talmud reveals that what shall a person do to be spared from the pains perceiving the coming of the Messiah, they say. What can we do? Because, you see, they understood that there's pain coming when the Messiah returns. The Jewish people understand this very well, that at the coming of the Mashiach, there's going to be a lot of pain. So look what they say. Rabbi Elazar said to them, they shall engage in Torah study and acts of kindness. You want to be spared from the pains of the, of the birth pains that comes with the coming of the Messiah? Yeah. The ancient rabbis, Chazam was teaching already that you need to be in Torah study. See, the answer is not trying to come up with a plan for the next 15 years to live in a mountain contrary to proper belief. It's not storing food for 15 years. It's not creating a bunker in the middle somewhere. It's engage in Torah study and do acts of kindness. Because the Jewish people understood that when you engage in Torah studies and do acts of kindness, okay, this is what we're talking about, the Maset Dov, right? The good deeds. What you do is you are fighting spiritual battles. They understood this already. They understood that getting in that book and opening and studying was a lot harder than to actually go out there and come up with a plan. Because you're fighting in the spirit. Look, how about Jeremiah 6.16? Look what it says. Thus says Hashem, stand in the ways and see, they say, and ask for what? The old past. See, we need to get out of this mindset of new. New, 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 new. 
Hashem is saying, seek the old paths. Because that's where the answer is. Look, as for the old paths, where the good way is, and what? Walk in it. And find what? Rest for yourselves. How do we find rest for ourselves? Jeremiah says it. Look for the old paths and walk in it. By the way, I don't know if you guys know this, but Moses is considered to be pretty old. Okay? Even in the time of Jeremiah, he was already known as a dinosaur. So, that's my point. Look for the old paths. Seek these things and walk in them. But what did they say? We do not walk in it. And I raised up watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the ram's horn. How many of you are actually playing? How many of you are blowing that ram's horn? There's a sound that goes forward when you blow that ram's horn, folks. Mm -hmm. And what did they say? But they said, we do not listen. Because the ram's horn is supposed to be the calling of repentance for the people. Therefore, hear, you nations, and know, O congregation, what is upon them. Hear, O earth, and see. I am bringing evil upon these people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not what? Listen to my words, nor my Torah, and they have rejected it, he says. I want you to understand something, folks. What does it say? Who is bringing evil upon the people? Who? Hashem. Hashem himself is doing it. Stop trying to get in the way of what he's doing. Be careful on who you're trying to save out there. I really want you to understand this. Because he himself said, I will raise evil upon you because you refuse to repent. And if he is sending the evil, if you get in the way, guess what? You're going to get it. We need to be people of discernment to understand what God is doing. To know when to go and save and when to know when to stay away. So look, John 1.17 says, For the law was given through who? Moses. Grace and truth came through Yeshua the Messiah. The connection in here is the law and grace. Because Moses was a picture of Yeshua. That's why in John 1.17... It's a comparison, not an against. You see, notice that in here it doesn't say but, but grace and truth. It doesn't exist because that was never in the original manuscript. It's comparing one picture of the Messiah with the actual Messiah. Just like Moses delivered the law to them as it was an act of grace so that they can find grace before the word, before the eyes of Hashem, Yeshua came and brought grace to them. It's revealing both pictures in there. It's a contrast and a comparison. So look, Genesis 6.8 says, But Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of Hashem. Why did he find grace in the eyes of Hashem? 6.9 gives us the answer. There are the generations of Noah. Noah was a what? Just man. Perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. I want you to really think about that. Because it says that he was just perfect in his generation. But yet, the Bible says that all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How do we reconcile those two? God is calling him perfect, but yet humanity is saying, well, we're not perfect. 
We can do it. By the way, God calls him perfect, and the, the commandment that Yeshua gave in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, we're missing something here, because God is saying, I look at you as perfect. But the problem is that you're not looking at yourself as perfect. But I'm calling you perfect. See, I always say that the yoke of man is worse than God. Because God's yoke is easy. He has called us perfect. But why was he called perfect? Noah was the first man, by the way, that was called righteous in the Bible. The very first one to be called righteous. Not even Adam was called righteous. So let's see this. Noah was what? Righteous, according to the Bible. That is the Hebrew word there. The choice word is zadik. And it means to be righteous, upright. But what else? I put it in red for a reason. Lawful. Lawful. Meaning with law. Not unlawful. Lawful. See, when the Bible talks about a righteous man, don't take it upon yourself to interpret that, please. It's in there. The word zadik literally means a person who is upright, which is a lawful person. What do you mean by lawful? Following God's commandments. That's important. We're not talking about just the any law. We're talking about God's law. Because who's the one who's declaring them righteous? God himself, the judge. So it depends on who's calling you righteous. If the governor of Florida call me, calls me righteous, then maybe I follow all the laws from Florida. Right? Under his eyes, I'm righteous. But we need to understand that it is God who's calling them righteous. It's his kingdom. It's his law. It's his government. So Noah was a lawful man, meaning he obeyed the law. Also, it says that he was what? Tamim in Hebrew, which means to be perfect. Now, that word for perfect, folks, the problem that we're having with this word right here is that we think perfect means you never sin. That's not what the Bible describes as perfect. That's certainly not what Yeshua was trying to convey because he knew that the audience that he was talking to was sinful people and that they were going to continue to sin until the day they die. Right. He knew that. But yet he still said, be perfect. What is perfect? I mean, it means to be blameless without spot, whole and undefiled. We got to understand, folks, and I'm not going to get into this because I don't want to go on a rabbit trail, but understanding sin the sin that leads to death and the sin that doesn't lead to death. The sin that keeps you in covenant with God and the sin that cuts you off the covenant with God. In order to understand this, we need to understand the laws of marriage in accordance to God's word. What constitutes for a divorce? Sexual immorality. That's undefiled. Not the fact that you sin, but there are certain sins that will cut you off, literally, from the presence of God. And I'm not coming up with this. John said it. The epistle of John speaks about that. And we want to talk more about that later, but let's continue on in here. So Noah was lawful, perfect, undefiled in his walk, in his ways, in his behavior, and in his conversation with Hashem. He was not just lawful and perfect on Shabbat. And then after sunset on Saturday, he went to become the normal person of the world. 
but rather he carried that out to the rest of the week. Every single day he walked with God. So look, righteous. Let's look at this word righteous. And through the pictograph, he's going to give us a little bit more revelation. What is righteous? Well, we understand that it's lawful, right? Because we got the definition. But I just want to reveal a little bit more in-depth of the word. Look, you got the the zap, the zap, the dalet, the yot, and the kuf, right? So the fish hook is the first one, which is the representation of a fish hook. And it literally, what does a fish hook does? It pulls towards, okay? It often has the meaning or the carry the weight of a desire to pull towards something. Then you got the door. What is the door? It's a way of life, a movement, especially into or out of. In other words, in a door, you either walk it in or what else? Walking out. So it has the carry of walking in or out of something, a way of life, a mode of life. Then you got the yoke, which represents the hand in Hebrew, the ma'aseh, your deeds, the things that you do, your walk every day. And then comes the kuf, which means what? What is behind, what is final. Kind of like a representation of a sense of the end of something. So that's what is final, the final chapter, what is, uh, what is behind you also. Because when the sun, sun is setting, you've got something you're leaving behind. What's coming behind? Well, the nighttime's coming. So when we put all these together, look what kind of revelation we can get out of the Zadik. A righteous person can also mean to pull towards or desire the way of life and come out of the works or deeds of what is behind amazing. When you come out of something, and you're coming out of the works of the past, and you're now desiring and coming towards the deeds that are God's now. God renders you as righteous because of that. Not because necessarily you kept his law perfect from the day you were born, but rather because you are seeking it now. You are walking away from your past, and you're now going towards him. That's essentially a righteous person in the eyes of Hashem. He's interested in what you're doing now. Look, 2 Corinthians 6.17 said, Therefore come out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. But what does he say? Come out. This carries the way of the pictograph righteous person. It's coming out of something and walking into something else. So you're walking out of unrighteousness and walking into righteousness. Zephaniah 2.3, Six all you humble of the land who do his what? Just commands. Seek righteousness, it says. You see, you need to be seeking it. What is the word for righteousness? It has a zav in it, which is to hook, to have a desire for it. Do we have a desire for righteousness is the question. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. How many of us are actually seeking humility? This is something that I believe we all need work on. We all need to work in humility, folks. We need to learn a little bit more about meekness. Look, he says, perhaps you may be hidden. By the way, that's grace. Why do I say that? You may be hidden on the day of the anger of Hashem. Meaning, when he hides you in the day of his anger, it means that he's protecting you. That's good grace. That's good grace. Why? But why? Because it says that you are seeking to do his commandments, 
and you are seeking humility. By the way, humility and the commandments work together. Because you have to have you need to be humble in order to accept the commandments. You cannot be proud and haughty. Otherwise you'll never receive it. Matthew 6 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you, he says. So it says in here, the earth was also corrupt, right? And before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And I want to share something about this in here. Because sometimes we read this, and we don't quite understand what really God is saying. What does he mean by saying the earth was corrupt? It is important for us to understand that. Why? Because of the message of the gospel. Remember, we need to line up with the works of Hashem and what He is doing. We just went through Genesis and what happened in Genesis? There was a fall. Sin came into the world. Adam, uh, Adam and Eve both chose the what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead of the tree of life. And we know that both are a representation of the Torah and the true Messiah and the false Messiah. The lie. So, what has God been doing? I just want to recap for a minute so I don't lose you. What has God been doing from Genesis 1-1? Or rather, from Genesis chapter 3, what has he been doing? Rebuilding. See, something happened. There was a fall. Mankind fell. God's design and order and creation became what? Corrupted. And what is the works of the Father from that day into today? is to what? Restore what was broken. But we need to know what was broken in order for us to line up with him and help with the brokenness. You getting this? It's important because this is part of the message of the gospel. The gospel is about the what? The rebuilding of something that was broken. We need to understand this and we need to line up with that so we can... We don't want to get caught, folks, preaching a false gospel. I can tell you that right now. Not all Gospels are true, by the way. There's a false Gospel and there's a true Gospel, just like there's a bad grace and there's a good grace. See, Satan will show you, cursed be his name, he will show you a bad grace. In other words, give more drugs to the drug addict. Look, he's suffering, poor thing. Here, give him more of that cocaine. He needs it. That's bad grace. But it's still grace. Because, you see, he wants it. we got to understand this, folks. And I'm just giving you one little example what good grace and bad grace is. Our grace needs to be in righteousness. Not because we feel and see a human being hurting. Because the drug addict may be crying tears to you. I need help. Right? Give me my fix now. Are you going to give him his fix? Because that's grace. And God says you should not let a human being hurt. By the way, he never said that, but that's what we reason within our minds, right? So, back to what we're talking about. The earth was corrupt. That word for corrupt is shachat. That is the choice Hebrew word used in there. And what does it mean? To decay, to ruin, to cast off, to corrupt, destroy, slowly infect. Right? Now, that's great that I just gave you the definition for shachat. But I guarantee you it still leaves room for 
that has nothing to do with the law of God. It just men, it just means men were horrible. That's it. Because I'm not giving you any more than what the word already says. Corrupt just means exactly that. They were being destroyed. But let's look at this closely. Let's look at this word shahat so we can see what does it mean to be corrupt in the eyes of God. Look, we got the shin, chet, and tav. That's shahat. The shin literally means to devour something, to consume, to destroy. The chet literally means to separate, to cut off. We just talked about that, the fence, right? And then you got the tav, which is the sign, right? Which is the covenant. Essentially, he's talking about the covenant, the sign. That's what a top means. So, let's put it together so we can see. When God says that the earth was corrupt, what did he meant by that? Look, putting them together, it means the people became destroyed by separating from the covenant. That's different, isn't it? Because now we're getting more into the meat. What do you mean they were corrupt? They were corrupt because they removed themselves from the covenant of who? The Almighty. See, folks, at the end of the day, either we let the word speak or we reason within ourselves what God really means. We need to be careful with the latter one. We need to just let the word speak. It became corrupt because the people removed themselves from his own covenant, from his covering. So look, 2 Kings 17, 22 says that the people of Israel walk in all the sins of Jeroboam, as Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as had spoken by all his servants the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Why? Because they chose to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. They were removed, essentially. That's exactly what it's talking about in Genesis, by the way, when it says that the earth was corrupt. Which, by the way, what did that lead to? Exile. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. <laughs> Jeremiah 7.23. But this command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God. Did you hear what he just said? Obey my voice, and I will be your God. Is he your God? Is the question. Because if he is your God, you need to obey him. Otherwise, he's not your God. He's your sugar daddy. So which one is he? Your sugar daddy, your genie, or is he your God? There's a difference. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people, he says. And walk in all what I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ears, but walk in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backwards and not forward. See, this has been, see, the reason why I'm bringing some of these examples, folks, because it started in Genesis chapter 3. It started there. When the choice was given to human being, to Adam, and they chose wrong. Now the theme from Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see the whole history of mankind. We're going to see a revelation of that, back to, going back to the garden. Look. So 6.12 says, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. We already covered that. Decay infected. For all flesh, now this verse in here is proving what I just talked about. The earth was corrupt. Why? Because they removed themselves from the covenant. But look what it says in here. For all flesh had corrupted what? His way. His way. 
What is that word for way? Derech, which means a road, a course of life, a mode or an action. Typically in, in, in Hebrew, it's a very good idiom that you talk about the derech or the halak, which is the walk. They both coincide together, the way of life. That means either you're walking in Torah or you're not walking in Torah, essentially. It's important that we understand these idioms, folks. If we don't understand these idioms, we're going to miss the whole picture in the Bible. Because we're going to be taking his way and interpret it our way. We need to interpret his way the way the Bible says. Men corrupted his way, meaning men departed from obedience to God and started obeying their own counsels. That's essentially what it means. So look, Isaiah 24, 5 and 6 says, The earth also is defiled under its inhabitants. Remember, we just talked about in Genesis chapter 3, the earth became defiled, corrupt. Why? Because they have what? Transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. See, this is consistent over and over and over and over and over through the written word of God. Therefore, has the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell in there are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few are men are left. So Hashem gave men 120 years to repent, folks, while the ark was being made. Now, this is very prophetic, I believe. Look at this. It says in Genesis 6, 3, Hashem said, My spirit shall not always strive with men. Boy, is that true. For that he also is flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. Now, most commentators, you know, not in the Judaic world, but more in the Christian world, interpret this means that man will live to be 120 years. But the problem with that is that even after this fact right here, men live way beyond 120 years. For many, 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 many years. So that's not the issue in here. How the Jewish sages interpret this. Look, let's see. 120 years is Shana. Is there a Hebrew word for Shana, right? It can mean a year, but it can also mean cycles of years. This word can also be referred to Jubilee years. What do you mean by that? Well, look, if you take 120 jubilees, Hazal even comes in agreement with this. If you take 120 year jubilees times 50, guess what? It gives you how many? 6,000 years. So what happens in here? Let's go back. It says, Hashem gave men 120 years to repent while the ark was being made. I want you to keep that in mind. Because let's just say, let's go what the sages say, that 120 years can possibly mean cycles too. So 120 cycle years, so Jubilee is 50 years, so you take 120 times 50, it gives you 6,000 years. Essentially, prophetically, he's saying God gave man 6,000 years to repent. Mankind? Mankind. To repent. Think about it. I mean, it's good food for thought. I kind of agree with what the sages say. So look at this, folks. 2 Peter 3, 8, 9 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years one day. This is why Hazar comes with a lot of these interpretations. Because Peter, believe it or not, he was a Jewish man who knew Torah. And he would have gotten all his studies from the ancient sages and what obviously was written in the Torah. Look at this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But rather, it is patient towards you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, you think to yourself, why is God given 6,000 years? 6,000 years of history. 6,000 years of pain. 6,000 years. You don't understand what 6,000 years is? That's a lot when you think about it. We're not talking about six days, guys. 6,000 years. That's a lot. That's why it says don't think that it counted as slowness because many people were thinking, my God, God is slow. But it says that it's his mercy and his grace why it's taking 6,000 years. By the way, six represents in Hebrew what? Men. So men will rule and reign for 6,000 years. Look, the flood was obviously judgment, right? We understand this. But this was also deliverance for Noah and his family. Look, Genesis 6.14 says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with tar. This is a beautiful revelation, folks. Because, you see, well, I'm going to share this in Hebrew so you can see it. Each and one of us today is commanded to build an ark. Seriously. Each and one of us today is commanded to build an ark. Because remember... Why did he say this? Who did he say this to? Noah? Why? Because he was going to do what? He was going to pass judgment on the world. So let's look at this in Hebrew to see how is it that we are to build an ark today. Now hopefully when I go to your house, I won't see an ark in your backyard, right? <laughs> Just make sure you're open. But look, seriously, on a serious note, yeah, we're working on it, right? On a serious note, let's see this. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and carve it inside out with ark. In Hebrew, look how this reads. It says, Asa lecha tevat atzei gofer kinim ta'ase. Let's stop there before we go on to the next one. It says, Asa lecha tevat. What is tevat? Tevat is the word, the Hebrew word for tevat. What a hey which literally means an ark, right? But that word in Hebrew actually just means a box. Like a box. That's it. A square box. Contrary to popular belief, the ark didn't look like the SS, you know, you know what? <laughs> didn't look like a modern boat. It was a box. That's it. As a matter of fact, in the synagogues in Israel, the ark in the synagogue is called the Tevah. That's where they host or the houses, the Torah scroll. Okay? So it says, Asa lecha teva gofer. It's the word for wood, so it's made out of wood, right? Gofer is an, unoriginal, it's an uncertain root word that in Hebrew really has no meaning. It means something that's petrified. It can mean something that's petrified. But the meaning behind gopher is that it was a wood that was resistant to the water. Take it for what that is. Whether it was pine, oak, I don't know. I don't care. The part of the point is, is that it was a wood. Now what is the real application for us to learn today? You wanna know why? Because in scriptures, the atse, which is the Hebrew word for etz, also carries the weight for a tree, right? A tree in the Bible, the prophets of old also assimilated or used the word for tree to, as an analogy for people. 
Think about this, folks. The etzego fair. He says that you are to it is talking about the trees that are resistant to the water. The waters represent chaos because it was the judgment. So this ark that Noah needs to build has to be something that is resistant to the chaos of life. The waters, remember the waters was the calamity that God brought upon the world, the judgment, you can say. Isn't he bringing judgment in the latter days? Yes. Okay. How are you going to stand in the judgment in the latter days? You see, you need to be at Segofer. You have to be of gopher. A wood of gopher that will resist the calamities of the latter days. Let me explain more. In my mind, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> Let me explain. Okay? <laughs> It really does. I see it clearly as crystal clear. But let me explain that. Let's continue so we can understand. Because it says in here, in this house, by the way, tebak can also mean like a, it, because it's a box that houses something, okay? It can also make the illusion also of an assembly. Look, it says in here, et ha teba. Now, you notice in here the difference? It says teba with a hey, teba with a top. But this is the root word, really, teba. So it's et, et hateva. It's this pointing to the messianic prophecy in here. The ark is prophetic. It has a prophetic meaning for the messianic kingdom or the era. That's why it says et hateva. Look, look what it says in here. Ve gafereta ota mi bait, it says in here. Umi chutz. This makes no sense when you read it. The way it is in Hebrew. It says that you are to take this hateva, which is this box, and you are to kofer. What is kofer? It's atonement. You are to place atonement up in, but guess what? It says ota mibait. In the translations, you are to cover it inside and out. That's what it says in your translation. But in Hebrew, when it says inside, guess what the word there is? It says, me, bait. What is bait? A house. It says that you are to cover the house inside and outside. The bait is also known as your body because you are considered a house. The congregation entirety, as, as communally together, we are known as a house also. So, God, follow me with this, guys, seriously. Inside and out, but I love this. It says from inside of the house and outside. You are to ba kofet. You are to place atonement upon it. The ark symbolizes, folks, the people of God gathering together so that we can have atonement through the Aleph Taf so we can withstand in the latter days when he returns. We right now are building an ark, whether you realize it or not. Remember, the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get more into this so you can see how it reveals more we, as we get further. Let's move on in here so we can see. The righteous were delivered. The unrighteous were removed, folks. Genesis 7.1. No, Adonai said to Noah, come into the ark, you and your household. By the way... Noah and his household. That's why in the Hebrew it says, Mi ba'it, mi chutz. Ba'it is the house. 
You see, the ark is not just a box, but it's a representation of the people of God. That's why, folks, as we gather together right now, whether you realize it or not, you're building an ark. Because what happens when we come together as a family under Yeshua? We have kafirah. We have atonement. We have the covering. Inside and out. Inside the house and outside the house. Look what it says. Although I said to Noah, come into the ark, you and your, your household. For I have seen that you alone and generation are righteous before me. This look with Matthew 24, 35. Yeshua talked about this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, he says. But when that day and hour will come, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father. For the Son of Man's coming will be just as it was in the day of Noah. This is why does parasha of Noah is important for us. Now let me ask you something. If you are just a New Testament reader, how do you, how do you make amends with this? Because it said just as it was in the, in, the, in the days of Noah, well, you have to go back to Noah to read about it. That means you have to go back to the Torah to read about it. In other words, he is saying that the story here in Matthew 24 connects with the story of Noah. So what happened in Noah is what's going to happen here. So the reason why I'm saying this, folks, I'm going to share something with you. What happens when you depart from the Word of God and you start believing in your own philosophy? How the stories can change. Look at this. It says, for, for, for the Son of Man's coming will be just. It doesn't say kind of like, maybe. He says, just like the days of Noah. Okay? Back then, before the flood, people went on eating, drinking, talking, uh, taking wives, becoming wives. Right up to the day Noah entered the ark. So what was happening? See, the, the Gospels do share more information than the, the Torah, does it? The gospel shared that this time that Noah was building the ark, kind of like we are today. Remember, what do we have in common? We live in a generation that's corrupt just like Noah did. Mm -hmm. And we are considered righteous by the eyes of God because of Teshuvah, repentance and coming to his Torah. Mm -hmm. And what are we doing? We're building an ark, Tevah, that means a box. And we are to take that box, which is, again, the house. We are to bring the people in with this, with it, um, Noah did. He brought his family in. Mm -hmm. But the gospel shares something more. It wasn't just for his family. See, Noah was calling people to repentance. Mm -hmm. Noah was telling the people, come into the ark. Mm -hmm. Are you calling the people into the ark now? You getting this? Yeah. Come into the ark. Mm -hmm. Because in the ark, there's protection. In the ark, there's kofed, there's atonement. But what were people doing back then? They were drinking, taking wives, and becoming wives. Or oh, taking wives. Yeah, and, and, and becoming wives. So what was happening is it was a world that didn't believe. It was a world that they didn't see it, how it was impossible that the world was going to end. Do we have that kind of spirit today? Yeah. I mean, everybody keeps talking about the end of the world, but really, how many often really believe it? People were going on in life, according to Matthew, they were going on with life as normal. Mm -hmm. Noah, here's Noah building an ark for 120 years. Right? And we can say the same thing. If it is true that it's 120 cycle years of Jubilee, for 6,000 years, how many prophets have died in calling the people to repentance? They call the people from millennium into millennium now, from generation into generation now. You had a remnant of people, they're saying, repent, come to the Lord. 
come back to his covenant. Return back to obedience. That's calling the people into the ark. Be a part of calling the people into the ark, folks. Build that ark for him. Because that's what he's in the business of. And guess what? How many people actually said, okay, we'll, we'll want to come into the ark with you, Noah? No. Which leads me to what I'm going to talk about next. How many people say yes to Noah? None other than his family. Right? Well, look at this. And they didn't know what was happening. Listen, this is very important, folks. And they didn't know what was happening until the flood came and swept them all away. Do you realize what's happening here? They didn't even know what was taking place. What's happening? Oh, the worst ending, by the way. Just like that. See, because we think that this needs to be a process. When we look outside, we're like, well, the forecast doesn't look like the war is going to end today. <laughs> Right? Really, what are the signs for the end of the world? What are you looking for? It's going to happen just like that, folks. They didn't really know, and they just took him by surprise. So look. Judgment came and removed the unrighteous from the earth. Now, let's go back to what I was talking about. Why is it important to know the understand the story of Noah? Because if you take away the Torah, you come up with your own dissolution. That's the problem. Unfortunately... This has been used, Matthew 24, 40. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding in the mill, one will be taken and the other one will be left. Therefore, stay away for you do not know what, uh, what day of the Lord is coming. So, this unfortunately has been used as a new doctrine to teach of a what? A pre-rapture. You see what happens when you remove the Torah? Because back, right here. He just said, for just for the Son of Man's coming will be just as it was in the days of Noah. The Messiah himself said it. But today we say, well, that's a pre-rapture. That's the rapture of the church. You see how much we have veered off completely? Because they're saying that the ones who's going to stay behind is the ones who unfortunately are not raptured. So it's a bad thing. But contrary to popular belief in the story of Noah... The ones who actually are going to stay is a good thing. Why? Because what does scripture said? That the meek will inherit the earth. See, we keep, we keep trying to get out of here. <laughs> it's true. We want to get out of here. Just get me out of here. Which is why men is involving this whole thing with Mars. The Mars program. To get a group of people to go to Mars and live in Mars. What do you think that comes from? Because we don't want to repent. Look how proud men is. Men will rather move to Mars <laughs> than to stay on Earth and repent. That gives you the condition of man's heart. Seriously. Get me in a ship, ship me to Mars. Like, that's really going to do it. They'll defile Mars too. It's unbelievable, folks. So look, we see in here. So what was the first thing Noah did when he came out of the ark? Genesis 8.20 says, Noah built an, ark, an altar to Adonai. Then he took from every clean animal and every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. The first thing he did, he did that, is offering to Adonai, giving thanks for his mercy and for his grace, right? 
So look at this, folks. Then what proceeds after that? Now comes the, what we call the rainbow, right? Look, Genesis 9, 12 says, And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I made between me, you, and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations, I have set my bow. It never says rainbow, by the way. It says bow. There's a difference. Because you can get a rainbow out of anything. A bow is different. So look at this. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and who? And the earth. Now there's a reason why he gave this sign. Now I'm going to tie this event in here with the Exodus story. Because everything is cyclical. So the Exodus story is revealed actually in the story of Noah. He gave a sign for a reason. We're going to see this. Look, the sign would be the Kesed, which is literally means a bow for hunting, for battle, right? So let's look at this. Noah's deliverance and Israel's deliverance. Why did he give him a bow as a sign? Why did he have to even give him a sign, period? Well, we're going to see the similitudes in this. Look, in Noah's deliverance, look what happened. Noah was delivered, right? They went through the waters of chaos, right? There was the storms that came in, the rains, and every water. It was chaos. So he was delivered from a sinful world. He went through the waters of chaos. They came out of a sinful dominance. They came into a wilderness. Now, why did I put in there they came to a wilderness? Think about this. I don't think a lot of us have really thought about this. But do you know that God destroyed the whole entire earth? That means that vegetation, cattle, all these different things, were there was nothing. The only thing they had was they brought in the ark so they can repopulate the earth. But the minute they came out of the ark, what did they walk into? A wilderness. A desolate place. Don't believe me? Just look at the photos of Puerto Rico. <laughs> Lately. And that's just a category five. That only lasted one day. Think about 40 days of that. So, you can literally say that when Noah came out of the ark, out of deliverance, he came into a wilderness. It's not like he came to a furnished earth full of greens and tomatoes and mangoes everywhere and avocados. There was nothing. He had the trust in God for his daily parishions. What about Israel? Same thing. They were delivered. They went through the waters of the seed of reeds. Just like Noah went through the waters. They came out of Egypt, which is a sinful dominance. They came into the wilderness. Just like Noah walked, came out of the ark and saw a wilderness. They have to trust in God for the daily parishions. So we see that in the story of Noah, it's very prophetic what will happen to Israel in the latter days. So what is the point of that in connecting it? Look, Genesis 9.20 says, Noah began to be a man of the soil. Now, this is the connection because he was delivered, right? And now he is handed over to this wilderness, but he is given a sign for a reason. And that sign was to remember his promises. Why do you mean the sign of his promises? Well, he said, I'm going to give you the bow in the sky so that the earth can remember and you can remember both that I will not destroy the earth again with the waters of chaos. Right? But why give him a sign to begin with? Well, think about this, folks. They're walking out into a world that's nothing, essentially. Can you think about that? 
How about if I throw you in the middle of the Gaza desert or the Arabian desert and just say, okay, here you go. It's yours. What do you do? It was desolate. There was no food. There was nothing. And the food that they had in the ark, folks, it was just enough for the ark. So look. So what happens with this? It says, now Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovering his tent. Now this is pretty interesting. We're going to see how this reads in the Hebrew to get a little bit more in this of what it's really saying. It says, So it opens up by saying, This is what is translated in your Bible. The first word, in your Bible, is translated as began. When it says, and Noah began, that word for begin is which is a man of the, of the soil. So let's look at this word, look. Noah became a man of the soil, it says, right? That means earth, flesh, not of spirit. That's why in the translation it says, He became a man of the earth now, of the flesh. But why did he become a man of the flesh? Let's look at the word, it is the Hebrew word, and it literally means, look, to expect progress, Waiting and expecting. What's translated in your Bible as he began literally means that he was waiting and expecting for something. Progress. Now that word goes to the root of halal, which literally means to profane, to begin to break one's word, act against, become common. There's a major connection here, folks. Because when Noah came out of the ark, he comes into a desolate place, just like Israel. When they came out of Egypt, they came into a desolate place. And what was the issue that Israel had? They were not patient. But what was the bigger problem that we see with Noah? That means that when Noah came out of the ark, he was expecting progress. He was waiting and expecting for something from Hashem. Now remember, Hashem just gave him the bow as a sign. And he said, I will not destroy the earth again with the chaos of waters. And I will bless you. Actually, he said that he will bless and make them fruitful. But now that he's in this wilderness, Noah's expecting a progress or he's waiting upon something. In the process of waiting, folks, we need to be careful that we don't become profane and begin to break our own word. This is a life lesson in here, folks. If you can take anything out of this teaching, take this. I can understand you're not understanding the whole art thing. Maybe that's a little bit off there. But this right here, it's really important that you understand it. Because in that season of waiting, you see Noah, when he came out, he was expecting a progress. How about you? When God sends you out, what are you expecting? How fast are you expecting it? That's important. Because you see, God told David, you're going to be a king. Right? How long did it took for David to become a king? We need to be careful. In that process of waiting, the problem with Noah is that he became, that word for became is a revelation, that he was waiting and expecting, and he grew weary and started profaning himself. 
That's the sin that Noah committed here. Look. Psalms 27, 14 says, Wait for Hashem, be strong, and let your hearts take courage. Wait for Hashem. Part of the problem with humanity, folks, is we have no patience. I will submit to you the hardest part of this walk. If anybody were to ask me, what is the hardest part of walking with God? Patience. Because you see, when you start your own company, you dictate how fast it's going to go. When you work for the king, you have no authority over anything. He tells you when. It's a big difference. There's a difference between having authority over your own life and when you surrender your life to the king. When you're at the mercy of the king, you have to have patience. When you live by faith, you have to have patience. Israel have to have patience. Noah have to have patience. King David have to have patience. Sarai have to have patience. How about Sarai? You're going to have a child. You know, many people say, oh, that Sarai, she was so, how can she do that? How can she go ahead of God? I laugh when they say that. I'm like, are you kidding me? The lady waited for 10 years. You, after six months, would have given up. It's true. And the way our mindset is today in our world, everything is fast. We would have never waited 10 years. And even after 10 years, yeah, she started reasoning with herself. See, Sarai is a picture in a shadow of Noah. Noah, in his waiting, he was expecting, and what happened is that he became defiled. What did Sarai do? She resorted to our own conclusion. You know what? Maybe I had too much mushrooms that day. Oh, Abraham, maybe you had too much mushrooms that day. God really meant that we're going to have a baby for Not me. Because, you know, it's been 10 years. I'm not getting any younger. See, we don't think about these things, do we? Even at 100 back then, folks, bearing children at that age was unheard of. 90, 80. And still, it's not something that was common back then. So look, we need to wait on Hashem. Psalms 37, 7 says, Be still before Hashem and wait patiently for Him. You know, this is a life lesson, folks. This is a life lesson right here. We have to learn patience. We need to learn to wait and stay, be still. There's a season where God says, move, you move. There's a season when God says, be still, you be still. And don't move, not even a finger. And we need to obey. We cannot stay behind. We cannot lag. But we can, certainly cannot get ahead of him either. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way. That's the problem with mankind. God promised me something. I'm waiting, but my neighbor has all these things. Oh, my next door neighbor over here, wow, God is blessing them. Oh, wow, the neighbor in the south and the north, they're getting all these good things. Now we start fretting. Now we start thinking, hmm, I'm getting desperate, God. What about my promise? What about what you spoke to me? That's why it says in here, do not fret to the one who prospers in his ways. Over the man who carries out evil devices, refrain from anger, it says, and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. You know that verse 8 is one that spoke to me in volumes? 
Because a lot of times in the process of waiting for God, we can grow very angry at God. There's a fine line there that can either be good, and there's a very thin line, borderline, good, or I'm going to curse God. It happens. You haven't get there? I promise you, you will. Because now you start thinking, Ma, Ma, what? You know, kind of like Ushpazi. Uh, So it says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. To sit here and stop pondering, when is it going to happen, God? When is it going to happen, God? Are we there yet? Are we not there yet? You ever had a child to do that to you? <laughs> oh. <laughs> right? Are we there yet? Are we done yet? Stumpies. <laughs> Are we there yet? Is it done yet? Is it done yet? Two minutes comes back. Is it done yet? Think about it, you know, but the other day I was sitting contemplating, because he does that to me quite a bit. The other day I was thinking about that, and I was like, wow. As I was sitting outside, gazing at the stars at midnight a few days ago, while everybody in this camp was sleeping, it dawned to me, I don't know why, but he came to my mind, how I do the same thing to my heavenly father. I do the exact same thing to him. The difference is that he doesn't get the way I do when he does it to me. He has patience. He has patience. There's the difference. But you see what I mean, folks. Sometimes when we look at it from that perspective, God will speak to us. We can be nagging five-year-olds, nagging at him, when is it going to be time, God? Now, I think back and I'm looking, I'm thinking to myself, wow, if Israel actually never asked me, Wow, how awesome. That would be music to my heart. <laughs> I actually will probably go out of my way to make sure he gets a pass. <laughs> but the fact that he nags, I actually slack. <laughs> Purposely. <laughs> but, you know, you know it's, it's just the, how, from the view, from his perspective, that when we don't question, when we don't sit there and grow fret because it's not happening in our timing, how awesome that he must feel to see that from us. That we are steady in our faith and not nagging to him. Are we there yet? <laughs> for the evildoers shall be cut off, he says, but those who wait for Hashem shall inherit the earth. We always need to remember that. Isaiah 40, 31, but they who wait for Hashem shall renew their strength. You want your strength renewed? You have to wait upon Hashem. And sometimes waiting is passive, but sometimes waiting is its verb, is action. There's a season to do. But at any given time, folks, as we wait, we worship Him. As we wait, we study the Word. As we wait, we sing praises to Him. As we wait, we thank Him for the simplicities of life every day. As we wait, we wake up in the morning and we thank Him that we can wake up and we can walk. Because there are people who are in a hospital who cannot even do that. As we get up in the morning and we can breathe, we thank Him. Because there are people that when they breathe, it hurts them. As we get up in the morning and we awake, we thank Him because we can enjoy a meal and the taste of food. See, there's so much to be thankful for while we're waiting, is what I'm saying. 
See, the problem is, this, it goes back to the Garden of Eden, folks. Our focus is always in what we don't have. You notice that? Adam and Eve were focusing on the things that they couldn't have. And that's what happens when we're waiting. When we're waiting, what are we focusing on? We're focusing on what we want. Because we're waiting. Okay, God, I'm waiting for that promise. So every day when I get up, all I can think about is that promise. But we forget about everything else around me. That's a sin in itself, folks. We're committing the same sin of Adam and Eve, focusing on what we don't have yet. Focus on what you do have. Focus on your husband. Focus on your wife. Focus on your children. Focus on all these blessings that God is doing for you. Thankful heart, folks, will get you a long way. So let's continue here, verse 21. And he drank of the wine, so because now he grew desperate, and he's, you know, he's, that's it. He was expecting something and didn't happen at his timing. He grew now weary and defiled himself. It says, he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered as sin. Literally in Hebrew it says, That means is from Lishtok, which means he drank. Mean from Hayayim, that is the wine, and guess what? Baishkar. That is the word shakar, which literally means to be intoxicated. Look, many people render this saying that when he became drunk, Noah took his clothes off. I disagree. Look what it says in here. It says, Baishkar min Hayayim, Baishkar, Baishkar. That is the key word right there. Bayit God is from the Hebrew root gala. What is gala? Gala means their dispersion, exile. So, matter of fact, the book of Galatians in the New Testament is galut, which is from this Hebrew word gala. It's talking about those who are in exile. So, when it says that he became uncovered, it's not necessarily talking about being, you know, without clothes, but rather he became spiritually exiled. In other words. Gala means to uncover something by exiling it. In other words, that spiritual covering that Noah had was now removed. Not necessarily that he didn't have physical clothes, but rather that that mantle that God, that protection that God had upon him was now removed. Why? Because he what? He took up the wine, and not because he drank wine, folks. Wine is legal to drink. It's because he became what? He became shakar. That literally, that word shakar, it means that you get to the point where you do not know what you're doing. You're not in the right state of mind. You don't have sound mind. What happens when you don't have sound mind, folks? It's no different than if you go and you smoke marijuana or you do any illicit drug that alters your mind. You open the world for demons to attack you. That's why more often than not, people who do illicit drug out there or abuse them rather, what happens is they will fall into that and they're going to trends. They start hearing voices. They start seeing things. Mm -hmm. Why? It's because it's opening doors that are not good for you to open. So what happened in here because of his Vaishkar, he became Vaishgal. That means he became exiled now, spiritually speaking. And it says, Betoch, Ahalot. So he became exiled Betoch literally means in the center or in between in his tent. That is his covering of his house. So that mantle was removed essentially at that very moment. So what happened after that? 
What was the outcome of this defilement? Genesis 9.22 says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. But their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So look, in Hebrew, verse 22, which is, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, reads like this. It says, Ham ed ervat. Okay? Avi so it says so it says that he saw and not necessarily that he see it but he also experienced something he saw and experienced Ham Abi the father of Canaan et Erba let's look at the word Erba because that's what is translated as nakedness the word Erba in here is nakedness but it can also mean illicit sexual intercourse or it can even mean shame so, Hazal is very, very divided about this. There's so many things that concerning this that can go either left or right. But one thing that is common in there, this very, the theme in here is that whatever took place in here, it was definitely shameful. Whether he did a sexual intercourse that was illegal, it was still shameful. And either way, I think that like Rabbi Hirsch says, and in his, in his interpretation is that it was shameful. That where it that he did, and we can agree with that. So look, it says in here, et erva, but notice that it has the alethah. Now that's something that to me is kind of like uh, profound, that it has the alethah connected with erva. It says, kanan et erva abib. So let's look at this, folks. Leviticus 18.6 says this, none of you shall approach any of his close relatives to what? Uncover nakedness. I am Hashem. Then it goes on in Leviticus 18.8 says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Now, it's interesting that the title that Hashem gives it in Leviticus chapter 18, 8, just saying it's the same title that we see in here, where it says, Edva Aviv, which is talking about the nakedness or the shame of your father. That is the same title that he gives in Leviticus chapter 18, 8, and it has to do when, of course, you do something that's illegal, like an illegal intercourse. Now, we see something similar with this with who? With Reuben. What did Reuben do? Reuben lost the firstborn blessing because he went into one of his father's concubines and defiled him and brought shame to him. So what is the possibility in here? There's several possibilities in here, folks. It could have been possible. Well, let's, before we get into that, who is he talking about in here? When it says in here... I want to share something with you. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, right? So who is the one that committed the act? Was it Ham or was it Canaan that did it? Because Canaan became cursed. Right? It's very interesting about this whole thing that's going on in here. But let's let's look at this and see. It says, um, uh, So he told them, His brother's Behut outside, right? So here, now we understand that Leviticus possibly can be talking about an illegal act that took place in here. So this is what happened. Genesis 9.24 says, And Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his younger son had done to him. Now, when we read this inner surface, 
obviously this is, doesn't make sense because if you look at the lineage, Ham was not the youngest brother. Oh, the youngest son, I'm sorry. Ham was not the youngest. Ham was actually the second, not the youngest. So when he says in here, when he awoke, he knew what his younger son had done. The only possibility in here, it will be Canaan, because Canaan was the youngest son of Ham. There's two options in here, but let's continue in here. So it says he knew what his younger son had done to him, and he said, Cursed is Canaan, let him become a servant of his servants to his brothers, right? So let's look at this word younger, because this is what throws people off, the translation. Let's see how this reads in the Hebrew. It says, That means that he knew, okay? So it's something that was actually physically done or an action because it says asa, that means to do and make. So it's asher asa, law to him. Oh wow, this is powerful. When I saw this in the Hebrew, it blew my mind. What I love about it is when it actually comes in agreement with the sages of Israel. It says in here, asa lo He's saying about his son in here, that word that he used for younger son, is actually the Hebrew word katan. Look at this. Katan literally means to be small, to be insignificant, to be unimportant, to reduce or to be cut off. Now there's a major connection with this word because we're going to start understanding that in Hebrew, arva, um, arva is, means more of a younger son when you're talking about younger as far as age, but katan, really typically that word when it's used is not in a good connotation. In other words, that's why katan means insignificant, something that's unimportant. Now look at this. Bereshit Rashi says this, although Ham, the sages believe there was Ham. Although Ham was not the youngest, he is called small because he was unfit and despicable because of the choice word that they use there for katan, is saying that it's not that it's talking about youngest age, but rather of importance. So Ham, or Ham, became katan, became unimportant, become unfit, because of what he had done, essentially, the deed that he had done. So why was Canaan cursed? Well, that's very scriptural. When he awoke, he was actually prophesizing. He wasn't necessarily accusing Canaan, but rather he was prophesizing of that lineage that will come out of him. That's why he says, curse be Canaan. So look, Ezekiel, let me show you how this word katan is used in scripture. Ezekiel 36, 31, look what it says. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will be what? Loathe. That word for loathe that is used in there is katan. Yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. Look in Psalms 119, 158. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. That word there for disgust is the same one for katan. Same word, same root word that it is used for ham, by the way. When he says that he was the youngest son, he was not referring to age. He was referring to the rank of the importance of that son in the value. Now, believe it or not, this word right here connects to the New Testament. 
See, this is a word that I've been teaching for years now. The last three years that I've been here, we've been talking about this. But now, finally, we're going to see the connection with the Torah portion to actually prove it. Matthew 5.19. It says, Whoever then breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches man's soul shall be called least. Do you know that that word least translates back to the Hebrew, to the Septuagint, to the word katam? which is the title that Ham took for his deeds, that's not a good thing, folks. So when the Bible says that whoever breaks the one or least of these commandments and teaches men, this is talking about a teacher who is aware of what he's doing. When he says that he is least in the kingdom, because I have heard all kinds of interpretation of this. The problem is that it comes in disagreement with the entirety of the Bible. Because a false prophet who teaches in the Bible... He was disregarded. He was cut off from the people. As a matter of fact, that was something that was considered an abomination. So why is it that in here, Matthew 5, 19, when he says that whoever teaches men shall be called least, guess what? It's not talking about that you're going to be in heaven, but you're just going to have a lower rank. That's typically the popular interpretation. They're still going to be in heaven. They're just going to be called least. That's it. One is going to be called great, and another group is going to be called least. But they'll all still be in the kingdom of heaven. When he's saying that, this again, this goes to Torah lingo, idioms. When he talks about least, the rabbis understood that least means katan. It means to be insignificant, to be unimportant, to be cut off. Even. That makes perfect sense with the entirety of scripture. Because if you are teaching men to forsake the commandments of God, guess what, folks? You will be cut off. E.g. Balaam. Why does Yeshua have a problem with the ones who are teaching the congregation the, the oracles and the teachings of Balaam in Revelation chapter 2? And what is he telling? Repent, or I will remove your lamp, he says. So when it talks about teaching, folks, it's talking about accountability of a teacher. You are teaching people that they don't need the Torah. Guess what? You will be called, called least in the kingdom. By the way, in the kingdom... In the reign of heavens, the kingdom is here today. Yeshua said it. The people were looking for a place. He said the kingdom is not a place. The kingdom is the ruling system of God. You don't see that. It's, it's there. So under the ruling system of God today, if you're teaching against the Torah, you are considered least today. That's not good. Because now you have the same title of Ham, who was considered least among his sons. So food for thought there. Genesis 2, 9, 26. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth and shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. That whole thing with dwelling in the tents of, of, of um, and dwelling in tents is an idiom for studying the word of Hashem, by the way. So when you are dwelling in tents, because remember, folks, back then when this was written, all of them dwell in tents. There were better ones. So this is not specifically talking about the physical house, but the idiom of that is studying the Torah. If you are not working the field, guess what? You are dwelling in tents. That's why Esau was a man of the field, and Jacob was a man who dwelt in tents. Tradition says that Jacob actually studied with Abraham in the tent studying Torah all day long, while Esau was the one who will go out. So tradition says again that Shem taught and talked about Hashem to anyone who will come and listen. 
Now we're going to talk about Nimrod, the beginning of the Messiah's kingdom, folks. Genesis 10:8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man, it says in scripture. Now the, the sages <coughs> actually connect the Antimashiach to this because of the titles given. And in the Hebrew it says, Bekush, that is Kush, Yelet, Ed, Nimrod. Notice that Nimrod has another talk connected to it. There's a messianic prophecy in here. Not that Nimrod was a figure of a Messiah, but rather an Antimessiah. Look, Bekush, Yelet, Ed, Nimrod, who Hachel, Lichyot, Gibor, Bailets. So the title here is the saying is that the Alatar Nimrod was also known as Vayot Gibor. You ever heard of El Shaddai, El Gibor? One of the titles for the Mashiach in Jewish literature is El Gibor. This is the title that we see for Nimrod in here. Look, Hazan says, before Nimrod, there were neither wars nor reigning monarchs. He subjugated the Babylonians until they crowned him after which he went to Assyria and built great cities. Rabbi Hirsch says this, Nimrod ensnared men with his words and enticed them to rebel against God. He was the forerunner of a hypocrite who drapes himself in robes of piety in order to deceive the masses. So when he's, Rabbi Hirsch says that he dressed himself in the robes of piety, it's talking about Nimrod actually didn't come as a tyrant per se, but he came as one looking very friendly. One looking actually righteous, but leading the people astray. This is already now a foretasting and a shadow of what the anti-Mashiach will come to do. Look, Daniel 7.25. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change times and law. One of the signs, folks, if you take anything of the teaching today, understand this. One of the signs for the anti Messiah is that he's going to change the law of God. The rabbis of old taught about it. Daniel, the prophet in the Bible, edified it. Simple put, the conversation is over. If you're preaching a Messiah that did away with the law, I'm afraid you're lining up with Daniel chapter 7.25. That's not when you are preaching another Messiah now. So look, what is the anti-Messiah going to do? He's going to look good at the outside, but his words are going to be venom. Look. So he shall change times and laws, and they shall be given into him to his hand for times and times and a half. So now we're going to end in here. Genesis 11, 1, the whole earth used the same language, the same words. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that is, has its top reaching into the heaven so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. Well, guess what, folks? The Tower of Babel is still being built today. <laughs> See, just like the ark, we have a business of building the ark. The world is building a Tower of Babel. The question is, which one you sided with? Are you building a Tower of Babel? Or are you building the ark of God? Well, Richard, how do I know which one I'm building? Let's look at it. The Tower of Babel. 11.6. Adam I said, look, the people are united. They have a single language and see what they're starting to do. 
By the way, that single language can even be coming in agreement, not necessarily has to be the same language. You can have Hebrew, Russian, Spanish, all these languages, but you're all coming in the same agreement. That's talking about, thank you, the United Nations. What is the what is the agenda of the United Well, it says it right there, United Nations. Right? Let's unite. But I will submit to you folks that it goes beyond the United Nations is so obvious. A kindergarten can pick that one up. But how about in the body of Mashiach today? You have that in the body today because you see you have people in this body today who are saying, let us come together at the end of the day and you keep your way and I keep my way. That's the same spirit of the United Nations, by the way. That's exactly what Catholicism has been trying to do for the last 2,000 years or so. That's what every false religion has been trying to do. Unite! Because it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds good when we say, let's unite. It doesn't matter if you believe the way you believe. We believe in God at the end of the day, right? You think that's not the nonsense that Nimrod was preaching to the people that's still echoing today? Look. So it says, look, the people are becoming around. They have the single language and see what they're starting to do. At this rate, nothing they set out to accomplish will be impossible for them, folks. When a people are united, they can accomplish anything they set out to do with purpose, folks. That is a fact because God built you that way. You want to build an empire? I promise you. You want it bad enough? You'll have it. There's nothing. You know, that's actually true what they say. There's nothing that you cannot do. It's true. It's actually true. You can but it's not about what you can do or you cannot do. It's about what's the will of God. Because men can purpose to do whatever they want. E.g., look at the example today. That one world religion, folks, is one back away. All they need to do is press a button and it's there. All big thing is lined up already. Everything is lined up for it. And they've been working on this for thousands of years. So what was the purpose of the unity is the question. To magnify themselves, to make a name for ourselves, to build up to the throne of heaven. Essentially, pride. Think about it. They say, let's make a tower that will reach to the heaven so that we will not be scattered again. Do you think, I'm just saying, food for thought, do you think that they had in mind the flood? Think about it. God ended up flooding the whole world. We're going to teach him a lesson. We'll build a tower that's so high that it doesn't matter if the flood comes. We'll be spared. Men are very, very crafty, folks. I mean, we do it, we've done it today. Every disease that God has sent out there, we have a cure for it, right? <laughs> it's unbelievable. I, I gotta laugh because it's men are just crazy. It's unbelievable. Look, rebellion leads to confusion and exile. Genesis 11 7. Come, let us go there and confuse their language so that they do not understand one another's speech. And Hashem scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they left off building the city. That is why the name is called Babel, because there Hashem confused the language of all the earth, and from there Hashem scattered them from along the face of the earth. Basically, exile. Look at this. Babel literally means confusion by mixing. So let me re let me, let's revisit the question that I asked about five minutes ago. Are you building a tower of Babel, or are you building the Ark of God? We're going to end this teaching with that question. What are you building today?
Because if you're building the ark of God, there's no confusion. Confusion comes when you mix. God's word, it's just simple. So either you're taking God's word and you're adding a little bit of this religion and a little bit of this religion. If you're doing that, folks, you might want to revisit what you're doing. Because what you're doing is you're building a tower of Babel. We need to speak and we need to be in clarity with God's word. Not the Tower of Babel. According to Josephus, Nimrod changed the government of the city of Babel into tyranny. This forced man to be in constant dependent of his power. Oh, isn't that true today? We are under the powers of the government, folks. Guess who started it all right here? You can thank Nimrod for that. And for a lot of other things that we're going to be seeing. Because it's the same spirit. Government and religion working together for the betterment of the people. Because we care so much about you. Right? The purpose of this tyranny was to turn the hearts of men from the fear of God. And I will submit to you that what Josephus wrote about this man is still echoes today. And it is true. To a degree, most of us fear men more than God. Oh, yes, you do. You fear the IRS. You fear all those people more than anything. We fear that power, folks. And that was the plan of Nimrod, to turn the fear of men towards him and not God. We have people that actually forsake the Sabbath to go work. That's turning, that's you fear more men than you do God at the end of the day. You trust more men than you trust God. We have to revisit these things, folks. You see, this is what the portion is all about. It's about what you're building today. We're going to finalize with this. What are you building today? I will, I will encourage all of us to build the ark, folks. We're going to end with the genealogy of Shem, which is going to lead us to next week's teaching, Abraham. Genesis 11, 31, And Terah took his son Abraham and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abraham's wife, and they went out from the Ur of Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, and they came into Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah came to be 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So what we see now in here is that Abraham is introduced now we're going to pick up next week with the story of Abraham. You know what's happening in here? That starting from Genesis chapter 1 to here, there's a strand that's very consistent. And that is what we see from Genesis 1 to today, or rather to this point in here, is that God is choosing a remnant. Or rather that the remnant is saying, I want to. And through that remnant, he is what? building his ark. And every generation, you play a role in building the ark of God, folks. This story of Noah is not just a story that happened back then. This story of Noah continues going on because now Abraham is going to continue now the legacy and the job of building the ark that Noah started, spiritually speaking. And until today, we still have that obligation to build the ark of Hashem, not the Tower of Babel. Amen? Amen. Right, let us stand. So our half Torah portion opens up with verse 1. Sing, sing, O barren one, you who did not bear, 
Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the deserted one are more than the children of the married one, said Hashem. In the United States, womenshealth.gov, which is a, a website that gets data from the CDC, says that um, CDC defines infertility here in the United States and, and throughout the world, but the, the statistics are specifically for the United States, as the inability to get pregnant after one year of trying, and for women 35 and older after six months of trying. About 10% of women, and that is 6.1 million women, in the U.S. that are aged 15 to 44 have difficulty getting pregnant or staying pregnant. I'm covering this because we're, we're talking about the barren one. And yeah, let me get, I'll get there in a second. It says that causes of fertility, uh, in most cases, um, are, are by problems with ovulation. Without ovulation, there are no eggs to be fertilized. Some signs that a woman is not ovulating normally include irregular absent menstrual periods. Ovulation problems are often caused by uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. It is a hormone imbalance problem which can interfere with normal ovulation. It is the most common cause of female infertility. Prim primary, primary ovarian insufficiency is another cause of ovulation problems. It occurs when a woman's ovaries stop working, normally before she is 40. POI is not the same as early menopause. Of course, early menopause would be a problem. We're going to be talking about Sarai shortly. Sarai was well beyond the time when women normally would be able to have a child. Beyond the time when women would have already gone through their menopause. But to continue, less common causes of fertility problems in women include blocked fallopian tubes, due to endometriosis, pelvic inflammatory disease, or surgery for an ectopic pregnancy, physical problems with the uterus and uterine fibroids, which are non-cancerous clumps of tissue and muscle in the walls of the uterus. goes on to say that many women are waiting until their 30s and their 40s to have children. In fact, about 20% of women in the United States now have their first child after the age of 35. The first experience that I ever had with someone who had a late pregnancy was my uncle's wife, or former wife. She got pregnant when she was 40, and I was maybe 10 at the time, and we were surprised that she had gotten pregnant. <coughs> Age is a growing cause of fertility problems in the United States. About one-third of couples in which the woman is over 35 have fertility issues. Aging is also a factor. It decreases a woman's chances of having a baby in the following ways. Her ovaries become less able to release the eggs. She has a smaller number of eggs remaining. Her eggs are not nearly as healthy. And she's more likely to have health condition, conditions that can cause infertility problems. And finally, she is more likely to have a miscarriage. The body is no longer as capable as a woman in her youth to carry that child. Well, let's talk about Sarai, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, but more importantly, the, the mother of Isaac. If she hadn't been a mother, then we would have no promise. Genesis 11.30, which is our Torah connection today, says, And Sarai was barren. She had no child. But further along in Genesis, chapter 17, 15, and 17, it says, And Elohim said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, do not call her name Sarai, for Sarah is her name. And I shall bless her, and also give you a son by her. And I shall bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples are to be from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, 
Is a child born to a man who is 100 years old? Or is Sarah, who is 90 years old, to bear a child? This is where Sarah's age at the time that she is due to get pregnant is identified. She was a very, very old woman. And it is extremely rare for a woman of that age to ever bear children. But again, if it hadn't been for, the, for, for Hashem blessing her, and if it hadn't been for her having that child, there would be no promise. And he would no longer be a faithful God. Other barren women of the Bible include Rebekah, wife of Isaac, mother of Jacob. Genesis 25, 21 says, And Yitzhak prayed to Hashem for his wife, because she was barren. And Hashem answered his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. <coughs> Rachel, wife of Jacob, mother of Joseph and Benjamin. Genesis 29, 31 says, And Hashem saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. The next is the mother of Samson, the wife of Manoah. In Judges 13, 2, her name is never given. It says, And there was a certain man from Sorah, of the clan of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had not born. And yet she prayed to Hashem and had a child. And she blessed Hashem. And she set that child into a Nazarite vow. And we know that's that child. But of course, also Hannah, wife of Elkanah, mother of Samuel, the great prophet. First Samuel 1, 1 and 2 says, And there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Sof Sofim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, son of uh, Yerocham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Suf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hanah, and the name of the other, Pininah. And Pininah had children, but Hanah had no. Also, and finally, Elizabeth, wife of Zechariah, mother of Yochanan the Immerser. Again, had it not been for the child and the blessing from Hashem, we would not have had the prophet to come in the spirit of Elijah. There was in the days of Herod, the sovereign of Yehuda, a certain priest named Zechariah of the divisions of Abiah. And his wife was of the daughters of Aharon, and her name was El Sheba. And they were both righteous before Elohim, and righteousness, excuse me, blamelessly walking in all the commands and righteousnesses of Hashem. And they had no child because El Sheba was barren and both were advanced in years. It says that she's advanced. Sounds very much like Sarah's case, that she was going to need the blessing of Hashem in order to bear a child. Hebrews 11, one, uh, excuse me, 11, 11 and 12 says, By belief also, Sarah herself was enabled to conceive seed and she bore a child when she was past the normal age because she deemed him trustworthy who had promised. And so from one, and him as good as dead, were born as numerous as the stars of the heaven, and as countless as the sand which is by the seashore. Again, without the child, there would be no promise that nations would have come from her, and that the children of Abraham would be as countless as the stars and the sands on the seashore. Galatians 4, 22-31 says, For it has been written that Abraham had two sons, one by a female servant, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the female servant was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. If we remember the story, and we're going to be covering it before too long, 
Sarah said to Abraham, go into my servant. Let her bear your child. Sarah felt like she needed to interfere with the promises of God. She didn't. That's something we need to learn. We don't ever need to interfere with a promise that God has made to us. There's nothing we can do to make it come along quicker, to make it come to fruition. Because he who promises such things is always capable of fulfilling that promise without our help. Galatians continue and says, This is allegorical, for these are the two covenants. One indeed from Mount Sinai, which brings forth slavery, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in slavery with her children. Is the Jerusalem here on earth not a part of this fallen world? Is she not part of the slavery and the, and the destruction and the corruptness of this world? We're going to talk a little bit about that in just a second. Galatians uh, 20, starting at 26, but Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it has been written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who do not have birth pains. For the deserted one has many more children than she who has a husband. And we brothers, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But he, as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him born according to the spirit, so also now. Are we not persecuted by those in the world who operate only according to their flesh? Because we operate according to the Spirit. And we speak the truth of God's Word. And a lot of times that's going to get us in hot water with them. But it puts blessing upon us. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the female servant and her son. For the son of the female servant by sh by, shall by no means be heir with the son of the free woman. There is no inheritance to the one outside of covenant. There is no getting into the new Jerusalem to the one who's outside of covenant, who does not walk in his ways and do, especially does not proclaim him. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the female servant, but of the free woman. So back to Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one, you who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the deserted one are more than the children of the married woman, said Hashem. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your, strengthen your stakes. For you shall break forth to the right and to the left. And your seed inherit the nations and make the deserted cities inhabited. As I read this, especially verses 2 and 3, I began to see the tent of Abraham expanding. He's having to add on. It's funny because after the addition of my roof, Melody was teasing me that I need to add on a separate room for my bed and another room as my living room. Even though my family's not growing at this, at this point, that's what I saw as I read this. They're having to add on rooms. They're having to take their house and make additions to it in order to accommodate their growing family. Do not fear. Something that's repeated quite often. For you shall not be put to shame, nor hurt. You shall not be humiliated for the shame of your youth, and you shall forget and not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your, your husband. Hashem of hosts is his name. 
and the set-apart one of Israel is your Redeemer. Blessed be he. He is called the Elohim of all the earth. For Hashem has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when you were refused, declares your Elohim. For a little while I have forsaken you, but with great compassion I shall gather you. In an overflow of wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting commitment I shall have compassion on you, said Hashem, your Redeemer. For this is the waters of Noah to me, in that I have sworn that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth, so I have sworn not to be wroth with you, nor to rebuke you. For though the mountains be removed and the hills be shaken, my loving commitment is not removed from you, nor is my covenant of peace shaken, said Hashem, who has compassion on you. Do you understand that he's not talking to Sarai? He's not talking to a specific barren woman. He's talking to the city, Yerushalayim, the capital of Israel. Because Israel, for so long, has not brought forth righteousness, has not sent righteousness out into the world, has not proclaimed his name in righteousness, has not acted in his name and as his messengers, as his people. He goes on to say, Oh, you afflicted one tossed with the storm, not comforted, because it is the problems of this world and of this life that continue to sway them back and forth from one nation to another, following whichever gods seem to suit them, but not the Almighty, not the one above all others. Amen. I am setting your stones in antimony, and I shall lay your foundations with sapphires, and shall make your battlements of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones, and all your children taught by Hashem and the peace of your children great. Hallelujah. In righteousness you shall be established. In righteousness the city shall be established. Made anew. Far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And far from ruin, for it does not come near you. Hosea 2, 18 and 20 says, In that day, in that day, a day yet to come, I shall make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the birds of the heavens and with the creeping creatures of the ground when bow and sword and battle I break from the earth. And I shall take you, excuse me, and I shall make them lie down in safety and I shall take you as a bride unto me forever and take you as a bride in righteousness and in right ruling, and loving commitment, and compassion. And I shall take you as a bride unto me in trustworthiness, and you shall know Hashem. It's interesting here that the last thing he says is take you as a bride unto me in trustworthiness. He's trustworthy. So it's not him he's talking about. It's that he's going to take them and they can be trustworthy. The city will break forth and no longer be barren for righteousness will come from her and he shall dwell in her. Ezekiel 34, 25 says, And I shall make a covenant of peace with them and make evil beasts cease from the land 
and they shall dwell in safety. Excuse me, they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. Sounds like it's lining up, people say it. And I shall make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant it is with them. And I shall place them and increase them and shall place my set-apart place in their midst forever. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says, It shall be in the latter days, days yet not to come, the house, that the mountain of the house of Hashem is established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Yep, definitely hasn't come yet. It's a day we're looking forward to. A day when we all flow towards Him. And many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of Hashem, to the house of the Elohim of Jacob, and let Him teach us His ways. And let us walk in His paths. For out of Zion comes forth the Torah and the word of Hashem from Yerushalayim. Micah 4, 1 and 2 says, In the latter days it shall be that the mountain of the house of Hashem is established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. Once again, coming into agreement. And people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Hashem, to the house of the Elohim of Jacob, and let him teach us his ways, and let us walk in his paths. For out of Zion comes forth the Torah and the word of Hashem. Yerushalayim. Word for word, if you will. Exactly the same. Do you know how big Jerusalem is? We're going to talk about, a little bit about Jerusalem having to widen, pull up tent stakes, and strengthen those, those stakes and the cords. Currently, it's 48.323 miles squared. What is that, about seven miles by seven miles? Small. That's it. Small. Really small. Do you know what it's going to be? We talked about it at Sukkot. I don't think anybody did the math, but I did. <laughs> I remember, I want to, I actually, hold on. I want to I read the scripture before I give you the number, because this is beautiful. <laughs> it really is. And the city lies four-cornered, and its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia. Do you remember how big that is? 1,377 feet. No, miles? No, feet. Miles. No, miles. Miles. 1,377 miles. Square. Right? Its length, the same as its breadth. It's a square. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, mix on to something. Yeah, I'm going to get there in just a second. So, the actual mileage, 1,896,129 miles squared. But now, wait a minute. I know. Right, Victor? Right. Now, look at this. Look at this. Do you know what the volume is? Because it goes on to say the length, the breadth, and the height of it are equal. It's not a square it's a cube. It is 2,610,969,633 miles cubed. Wow. <laughs> wow. Revelation 2.1. I, Yochanan, saw the set-apart city renewed 
Yerushalayim coming down out of the heaven from Elohim, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's going to take another, at least another millennia for this to happen. For this happens in the Olam Haba, the final everlasting age. Revelation 21.16 says, And the city lies four-cornered. Its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia, the length and the breadth and the height of it equal. The Olam Haba holds a lot for us. But that's not to say that where we are right now doesn't hold a lot for us. There is a lot of learning that we need to do. There's a lot of growing that each and every one of us need to do in order to be like Messiah. For as Paul says, he is the goal, the end of Torah. That's what we strive for, because if the Torah is completely within us, then what people see is Mashiach himself. They'll see this face, but the actions and the words will be Mashiach. So each and every one of us should be striving for the goal, which is Mashiach, so that when that day comes, and we stand before him, we will be counted as righteous. All right. Now, the uh, story of Noah has a uh, uh, bunch of parts to it that we can really bring into our life today and really apply it to ourselves so that we can kind of walk out the righteousness that Noah walked when he walked with God. But today, we're just going to focus on one little part, and we're going to see it here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. To the disobeying ones. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So right here, we're going to see, the subject he's talking about here is the long-suffering of God. Because there's about a thousand years between when Adam and Eve commit the first sin, and then the world slowly descended into wickedness, and then the flood came. That's a pretty long time. And right here... Peter is calling it the long-suffering of God. So we're going to look at this word and see what it means. In the Greek, it's macrothumia, G3115. And it means long-suffering, patience, slowness, and avenging wrongs. Now, the people back in the time before the flood were committing lots of wrongs. And a thousand years is a pretty long time to wait to avenge in this. But it also means patience. And here's something interesting about Hashem. He is known as the God of patience. In Romans 15, 5, he says, And may the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Messiah Yeshua. Now, one thing we need to notice. Hashem is holy, so he has commanded us to be holy. He is perfect, so he has commanded us to be perfect. He is patient. I think we should be patient too. That way we can line up with his big plan because his plan is huge, bigger than any of us. But if we want to be part of it and what little part that we can, we need to be like-minded. So, now in his patience, the slowness and avenging wrongs that he's doing, it's not slowness how we would see it. Because remember, his ways are above our ways, his thoughts are above our thoughts. So, why does he take such a long time? to bring about the judgment. 
In 2 Peter 3.19, it explains, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what he's talking about here is he's taking his time for you. Now, let's go back to a time before we repented and came to the Lord and walked in his ways. It, had he come with the judgment before then, we would have missed out. So because of his patience, there was time for us to repent, come to his light, and become part of his promise. But he is still taking his time because we weren't the last ones. The harvest is still yet to come. There's going to be other people out there who need time, who need his patience to come into his walk. So it's not just about us. The world doesn't revolve around us. There's other people involved in this too. But one thing you need to remember about this patience, whenever the scripture is talking about the Lord's patience, he usually follows it with a little subject here. So we're going to read the same verse again in 2 Peter 3.9. He says, But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So we see a common thing here. We're talking about the Lord's repentance. They usually clarify it with the judgment still coming. Just because he's taking his time and he's being nice, doesn't mean he's not going to bring the judgment. So we need to always remember that. We see this again in Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? read this already. His patience and his kindness is to give us time to come to him. Then the next verse says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Again and again, I'm not going to go through all these, but there's just example after example of God's patience leading people to repentance, but then the judgment comes. So, here's another reason why. There's a lot of people out there who do not understand the character of our God. And they think that he's just, he loves to judge. And he loves to take down the wicked and destroy them. You know, it's just something he just can't wait to do. But no, that is not his character. The reason he is slow in judging the wicked is because he loves the righteous. It's not because he hates the wicked to the point where he just loves to kill them all. He loves the righteous more. In Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God and not rather he should repent and turn from his ways and live so when he cares, he doesn't want to destroy the wicked he's a righteous God so he will and that's what he has to do there's no other way but what he takes pleasure in his real joy is when the wicked person turns from doing wicked and turns to him and does righteousness that's what he wants that's right He's not this God just out to destroy everyone. He loves his people and he wants his people to come to him. And there is a uh, scripture here in Matthew 13 that uh, kind of just brings this whole thing together really nicely. Matthew 13, 24. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servant and the master of the house came and said to him, Master, do you not, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? 
And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. So this is what's going on here. Like, uh, like, look at Noah. He was a righteous man that walked with God. He was upright. He kept his law. He did everything right. But had God just wiped everybody out, even before Noah came, he would have never had a time to, to walk with God because he would have been wiped out before anything even came to the harvest. So the wicked are going to be destroyed. They're going to be bound up and thrown into the fire. And then the wheat will be taken into his house. So, but it takes time. The harvest needs to grow. So, there is a mind that needs to be avoided because I'm not going to go through all the verses, but here's one in Ezekiel 12, 27. Because some people, when Hashem is taking too long in their own eyes to bring about the judgment, they grow weary and then they start coming up with ideas. In Ezekiel 12, 27. Son of man, behold, they, the house of Israel, say, the vision that he sees is for many days from now. And he prophesies of times afar off. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. And there's lots of examples of people, because you know the prophets you know, said the world's going to come to an end someday, but I don't see it. I'm just going to go do my own thing, and they use it as an excuse. God doesn't see what I'm doing. And they go off and try to build their own kingdom. They step away from his grand plan. They basically start becoming God in their own lives because they grow weary. They think it's just going to be for some generation, sometime in the future. It doesn't apply to them. So we need to not have that mindset that, oh, it's going to be 10,000 years from now. Right. Because remember, for each and every one of us, it's only one heartbeat away. That's right. <laughs> so, like, look at people way back, way back. Like Abraham. He still isn't sitting or twiddling his thumbs. He's not here yet. No. The moment Abraham closed his eyes on his deathbed, remember the twinkling of an eye, so long it takes, the kingdom's there. So, what does this mean for us? Here's another parable. We had a lot of them, and I think they really help us understand what's really going on here. We're going to do the parable of the ten virgins. We had two groups. We had a group that was prepared and ready and, and uh, put the oil in their lamps. And then we had a group who was kind of, you know, it's going to be so long from now, why do I even need to get ready? Well, they both fell asleep, but when the time came, the ones who were prepared were ready to go. And then the ones who were not were begging, you know, give us some of your oil. But they're like, you know, because there won't be enough. So we'll start here in Matthew 25, 9. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not <clears throat> be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy oil for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the, bri the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, remember the ones who had the oil in their lamps, the ones who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and then the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And then he has a little warning at the end. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Because you could come next year. He could come very soon. <laughs> so, what we need to do is always be prepared. Because he is patient. He is very kind. But the day of judgment will come. 
So, for the people who are out there and still haven't repented, what this means is in Isaiah 55, 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Because in these parables, when the door is shut, it's too late. And for those of us who have already repented and we're helping to bring in the harvest, and we're thinking it's just taking a while, we got this right here in Matthew 24, 13. But to the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Also in Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And remember in Hebrews chapter 3, it says we are supposed to exhort or encourage each other every day. So you're not on your own, and you're not just encouraging yourself, you're encouraging your brothers and sisters to hold fast, to endure to the end, to not grow weary. So in conclusion of this, he is delaying, he is taking time to bring on the judgment because of mercy. Right. And if he came before you repented, well, it would have been too late for you. It would have been too late for any of us. So, now he's still waiting for others to repent. So now we need to have mercy in our own hearts and accept this, that it's for others that we are waiting. Right. So, now is the time to turn to Hashem. Because we need to live our lives as if he was literally going to be here tomorrow. Because even he said, I'm coming soon. He just didn't say that to say it. He might live like I'm going to be here tomorrow. And because when we do not know when the time will be up, <clears throat> we always need to have oil in our lamps. And uh, we always need to have our hearts ready for his return because when he gets here, we just need to be able to get up and say, I'm ready for this feast. Open the door, I'm coming in, and we're ready to go. And that is the New Testament today. Hallelujah.